Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans, or if it's your first time, welcome. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to amazing Asian American stories. We hope that through our conversations with our diverse slate of guests from the Asian American community that we hope to inspire you uh, to share some uh, resonant stories and to inspire you to do great things in your own life. I am your host, Jerry Wan. Today, my guest is Charles Jung, who is a lawyer by trade and is now doing a lot of work behind the scenes and even in front of the scenes to help uh, move our community towards um, a, a better place that he believes uh, in, in terms of justice and in terms of community advocacy. And so really, really grateful to have him on the show. This is our uh, final and 10th episode of our partnership with Stand with Asian Americans. And so, again, as we always have and so grateful for our friends over at SWA, Justin, Brian, Wendy, Diana, and the rest of the SWA crew, uh, thank you for supporting our show and for uh, doing these 10 episodes with us. Uh, just a heads up, uh, we'll be doing two bonus episodes with them throughout the end of the summer and beginning of the fall. And so stay tuned for that. Here at The Asian Americans, this is a wonderful and very exciting week. We unveiled a brand new logo. Uh, we had our first logo that we have been using for the last two and a half years. Big thanks to our original designer, Jason Liu, for creating that one. Our summer intern, Tammy Sassone. Uh, created this one. I, I love it. Uh, everybody else on Instagram seems to love it. And so uh, if your podcast artwork looks a little bit different, uh, you know, a little less black and white and a little bit more color, uh, that is the reason why. And to help us celebrate our brand new logo uh, that Tammy has created, we launched some more shirts on our uh, merch shop. So you can get there at bit.ly slash DAA shop, DAA for the years Americans and the word shop. Uh, if you buy anything that has a new logo on it, uh, most of the profits uh, will go back to our summer interns in the form of a thank you bonus so that we can say thank you for all their hard work. Our other intern, Yan Lee, helped us launch our brand new newsletter. Um, and you can sign up for that at bit.ly slash DAA newsletter. And starting next week, we'll be launching a brand new weekly newsletter where you can find out more about the show, more about our guest and writing that Yan will do and learn more about what's going on in the community. And so Really big, exciting week for us here. Uh, new logo, new newsletter, new swag, same old Dear Asian Americans. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. And um, honor, always an honor to share these stories with you. Um, really excited to share this one uh, with Char uh, share this conversation with Charles, uh, with the rest of you. And so without further ado, here it is. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dears Americans. Hope you are doing well and hope you are continuing to uh, uh, stay safe. Um, COVID still isn't gone, but then we're starting to hear about all these new different viruses and things. And uh, if you're worried about the economy, you know, um, you're not alone. And, you know, we've been talking to a lot of friends in the community over the last 10 weeks um, as a part of our partnership with Sandwich Asian Americans about how we can view what's happened in the last two years and more importantly, how we process information and how we can move forward um, so that one, these things don't happen as frequently and to how we can use this moment to galvanize the community and to really uh, figure out what we need to do for next steps. And so today I'm really, really uh, honored and happy really to share this conversation uh, with Charles Jung. Uh, he is a lawyer by training and he is a partner of his firm, Nasiri and Jung. Uh, he's been around the lawyer game for a long time and more importantly, the community space, uh, specifically within the justice arena. Uh, he's the executive director of the California Asian Pacific Bar Association and organizer with the Asian Justice Movement, also involved with uh, APAs versus hate, and uh, really somebody who has worked uh, both in front and behind the scenes to help us make light of all that's going on and to make sure, again, what can we do macro-wise, uh, policy-wise, and um, using the law and using uh, all these resources uh, so that we can put these things past us. So at the same time, we'll get to know a little bit of his background and um, how he came to be. And so, Charles, welcome to There's Americans. Thanks, Sherry. How you doing? Good. Um, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Um, you know, Justin, uh, who is head of uh, SWA, introduced us and uh, we had a chance to briefly meet. Uh, I can't believe that was 10 weeks ago already at the uh, Korean American Community Foundation of San Francisco Gala up in the Bay. Um, a lot has happened. A lot continues to happen. How are you doing overall? Uh, I, I, I'm doing doing really good. You know, I, I, I was... Uh just as I was logging on to talk with you, I had a smile on my face because I was thinking about this uh, event that we threw last night called the Fight Asian Hate event. And we brought uh, local 
uh, elected officials to talk about the topic of uh, addressing anti-Asian violence. And yeah, it was uh, really cool. Had about 200 people there, had some excitement both during and before the event. So it was a good time. How And and you're in the Bay Area, uh, geographically speaking, which um, has been where many of these stories of attacks and of violence and of hate incidents have been stemming from. You know, there is density of population there. Um, There's also a consideration of, depending on on who you ask, um, the accountability or policing or lack thereof. And there's many, many opinions on this around our community. But how has it been being within the community, being a part of the legal profession and the community justice community where um, you're probably talking about this more often, number one, but two, with a little bit more perspective and knowledge than most of us who are either not from the Bay or who are not uh, as well versed in law, policy, and the community? Yeah. How's it been? Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been really interesting. I mean, I'm, I feel like we're almost uh, witnessing uh, a a wave, and you know, to use another disaster metaphor, you know, kind of uh, observing the fault line of Asian America right here in San Francisco. Um, and uh, you know, I shared the story with Justin, but when I walk to work, uh, I climb over Telegraph Hill, and you know, I walk through the senior centers, mostly Chinese uh, elders who live in the senior center. And there's this uh, elderly gentleman who who I see exercising every morning. He's experienced uh, a stroke and he uh, you know tries to exercise to regain mobility in his one side of his body. And he's always so nice to me and my daughter. And um, you know, I got to talking with him the other day. His name is Andy. And he talks about, you know, his experience as a Chinese immigrant. And he's occupied what he described as all those jobs that a, a Chinese immigrant occupies, a busboy, a driver, a, uh, you know, someone who works in, uh, in a kitchen. And, you know, he was talking about how proud he is of his daughter who's able to work at a local hospital in a professional role. Mm. Um, and, but he described working at a restaurant called Skomas, which is a famous restaurant, uh, you know, not too far from there in Fisherman's Wharf. And, you know, I just had this kind of a vision of him and how he might be treated as a busboy mm. in, in Skomas and, you know, uh, you know, and, and thinking about, um, you know, what he did to sacrifice to make it possible for his daughter to occupy a professional role and, you know, so that he could elevate her. And, um, you know, two, but two weeks prior to that conversation, I was in this dinner with some Asian American political leaders who led, you know, who've been kind of at the forefront of leading this movement of amplifying the Asian American voice politically and who, you know, helped lead, uh, you know, some of these recall efforts. Uh, you know, one relating to the district attorney. And I am not involved in those efforts, but uh, just kind of seeing, you know, visualizing that juxtaposition, you know, imagining how this uh, elderly gentleman who worked in in the kitchen at Skomas, you know, how how his experience must have been and how he made possible that moment where Asian-American political activists and leaders could really influence and shape San Francisco policy mm-hmm. and politics and have an amplifying impact across the cu- country. It was re- really a special moment. I think it's wonderful. And, and you touched upon so many things. And, um, you know, I think those of us who are of our generation of our uh, privilege in terms of academia or professionals, and obviously if you're listening to this show, you have technological privilege, you have space and time to listen to our voices and we're not worried about survival right as as many of our parents and perhaps grandparents did and you know just hearing that story of just one generation ago we saw ourselves so differently we almost expected the racism welcomed being treated differently because we did not have the audacity or the uh thinking 
to view ourselves as American, to be expected to be treated this way. And I think when it comes to conversations around our identity, that's what makes it, um, we often talk about the, the richness of the diversity of the community, but also makes it really, really complicated and complex to talk about because people see themselves so differently. And we're not even talking about, I mean, you and I are both Korean, but the, the diversity of ethnicities and how, quote unquote, back home, we all hate each other and we've tried to take over each other's countries and the history is complicated. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, all the Asians, yeah, you know, include the include the PIs too. Yeah, right? yeah. You got you all got to get along, and you know it's one cohort, <laughs> um, and it's it's challenging, right? And I think when, when we look at different geographies too, and you know the the three major cities of Asian populations or the three biggest cities in America, San Francisco, LA, and New York, um, there's also a lot of local nuance there too. Of you know who is the more established community, who right. has the political voice, who has the community connections. I'm very curious to learn sort of how you came to be this person that we know as both the face and the voice of many movements. And we also know that you advise a lot of people and organizations behind the scenes to make things happen or to, you know, give different perspectives. You're a lawyer by training and you've been in practice by yourself uh, for quite some time. But let's roll the tape back a little bit and, you know, help us get a better understanding of Charles Jung in his youth. Um, how the Jung family come to America, where'd y'all land, and, and tell us a little bit about how those early years shaped your view of the world. Yeah, um, well, my uh, my family background is from Korea. We moved, uh, we followed my dad to to study in the United States and landed in Detroit. And uh, that's where we started out our lives here, downtown Detroit. Um, you know, my mom had a wig store on Seven Mile Road. I'm remembering that correctly. And, uh, you know, people consider that the bad side of Detroit, depending on what your perspective is. We never saw it that way. Uh, and then we wound up moving to uh, Flint, Michigan. And, you know, my sister and mom continued to live there at, around the time of Vincent Chin, right, 40 years ago. Wow. You know, so, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that we ever, uh, you know, you said we, you know, may have experienced racism, welcomed it. I, I don't think we ever welcomed it, but <laughs> I, not, not welcomed it. But it wasn't a shock, as you know, like it wasn't. We didn't think, even my parents now, like if something bad were to happen, they would accept it as like, I mean, you know, yeah, we're, yeah. we're guests in this country for sure. That's the attitude. I know exactly what you're talking about, and uh, you know, when we lived in Flint, Michigan. You know, we lived in this small red house, you know, only one side on the corner uh, and only one side was paved. The other side was literally a dirt road. And, uh, you know, my sister and I, when we were going to elementary school at Gillespie Elementary, we would have to traverse this field to go between the school and our house. And, you know, there's so many memories from that time. But, you know, one distinct memory for me is you know, walking home with my sister and, you know, hearing bicycles come behind us and hearing, you know, voices kind of shout at us and taunt and, you know, yelling chink and ching chong and go back to China. And I have a distinct memory of, you know, kind of, you know, we were latchkey kids, Gen X, uh, not too unusual, I guess, but we were one, I guess we were the only Asian people in our school and in our neighborhood. And I remember kind of being, those latchkey kids and kind of cowering behind our locked, you know, door in that crappy little red house. And, you know, but just feeling afraid. I remember this moment when neighborhood children were throwing rocks at our, at our house. And, you know, it, you know, that you're right. I mean, it was a different time and it was, uh, it was just the thing then. And that's what you went through as a kid in the Midwest in Flint, Michigan at the time. You know, but that, I mean, that's such a, such a, a, uh, kind of a, a life lesson, right? I mean, like mm -hmm. imagine what happens to kids like that. I mean, so in, in the Asian American movement, I feel like people who come from the Midwest, they have this kind of experience, you know what I mean? Yeah. They have this experience of racism that, uh, you know, in, you know, for the, uh, few of us who wind up on the coasts, you know, we carry that with us. You know, so, yeah. so, so many people carry that with us, but, um, yeah, so, we, so that's how we started out. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a, I like to, sometimes I think of myself as a three-time immigrant because after bouncing around the Midwest, um, my parents moved back to Korea and I wound up going to a Korean high school there, 10th grade. Wow. 
finishing it out. Like international school or like actual local school? No, man, Korean, Korean. Yeah, I went wow. to a, that's where I learned Korean. Um, uh, you know, had my head shaved. Uh, you know, uh, experienced Korean style corporal punishment my first day in school. Um, <laughs> And You're bringing back some memories, man. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, and then you know had the experience of you know being a pretty decent student here in the United States and being super arrogant here, and then going to Korea. You know, having my you know exper- experiencing that kind of system, and you know, uh, you know, having going from an A student to an F student. I think the only class I didn't get a F in my first year in tenth grade was uh, English, and even there, I'm not even <laughs> sure I got a B, an A, man. <laughs> did your um your your father went to study at Wayne State or? Yeah, did- yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, he. Uh, you know, it's. You know, you think about his experience. You know, he was. Uh, you know, he's grew up in that wartime generation and. Uh, you know, he's a tough guy, tough guy. You know, he, you know, he tells me the story about elementary school during the war. Um, I might have my time frames wrong, but you know, he would go down to the creek to uh, fish for frogs, and hmm. he would catch them, string them along his belt on a wire, and take them home so that he could, uh, you know, feed some protein to his half brothers and you know half sister. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, you know, he's, you know, that, that wartime generation, super strong. Yeah. And, you know, he wound up doing well for himself studying and he got the, you know, achieved a, you know, the highest raw score in the national entrance exam. And then to go from that during the, you know, in that post-war country and then come to the United States and, uh, you know, you know, he went to Wayne State, right? In downtown Detroit. It's not, you know, he had to kind of start over. Um, but you know, that, that generation has so much resilience. That's incredible. Um, I mean, and I'm going to just brag about you a little bit cause I can, and I should, I mean, and then you went to Duke, then up the coast to Harvard, then up to the West coast to, to Stanford. Did you apply to Duke as like a great, like from that one's been challenging, right? Cause, but for you, the goal was to come back stateside to go to school always. It wasn't the goal. I just had no choice. I mean, I failed. I failed miserably in in high school, and uh, you know, I I think I rose my I raised my average from an F in tenth grade to probably a D to maybe a C minus. <laughs> like no way I could go to go to college in in Korea. I had I had no choice. I remember you know kind of like sitting with my shaved head in the back of a sixty person classroom and. Uh, at Yongdong Kodakyo uh, in 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 Seoul, and you know, just being like scared out of my mind, and like studying, you know, ig- trying to ignore the teacher and not get caught, you know, studying English language books so that I could take the SAT and all these other other tests. I had no choice, and you know, I can tell you, I I, I was fl- floored when I got into college. I was like, wow, <laughs> that is talk about giving a person a second chance. That's like. It's like redemption. I'm not going to waste this chance. But yeah, no, I was oh, I was floored man. to go to college, a four year college. That's I, I want to get a better understanding. Knowing what you do now, like how did those? Because you were other twice, right? Like in the country now that we call home, and then this is you know something that many immigrants really I think we understand, but we don't really experience it. So like you know somebody says. Hey, you know, Korean guy, go back to your where you come from, and then you go back. Yeah, not by choice, but like you know, your family takes right. you back, and you're an outsider again because then they're like, you're not Korean enough. Right? Yeah, you're yeah, not a real Korean, right? And yeah, there's the, the the gatekeeping of the Korean definition or any Asian country definition is is just as toxic as racism can be here. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Did that? Was that? How much of that motivation was because you went? Uh, to Duke and then you went to Kennedy school for policy and then to law school. Um, how much of that contributed to wanting to pursue law as an academic pursuit or was it just, you wanted to be great. You got the second opportunity and you just did what you thought was good to, uh, you know, set yourself up professionally. 
Uh, well, I mean, coming out to the coast that was, you know, central to the motivation, I mean, really gives me a sense of that feeling of alienation and being other and not belonging. And so coming out to the coast, yeah, I mean, I, I intended to move from, you know, Boston to, uh, to work out in L.A., you know, be part of that Korean American experience like that. I, I was so amazed you know, when I went out to, you know, the, I had a friend at the time I met in grad school named Pongwan Kim. He was the head of KYCC, Korean, Korean Youth and Community Center uh, in Koreatown in LA. And I was like, wow, there's like a real Korean American culture here. It's not Korean. <laughs> it's not American. It's its own thing. And to like go from the situation where it's like, you know, there are two Asian kids in my school, me and my sister, to, Koreatown, that was amazing. And uh, uh, yeah, so I, you know, uh, so I intended to come out to LA after grad school and then somehow wound up getting into law school and, and staying in, uh, you know, wound up staying in the Bay, which is another amazing, amazing place, like 36% <laughs> Asian American. I mean, it's unreal. Um, I I mean, you talked about sort of growing up in the Midwest, right? And like, you know, when we typically people talk about Midwest, it's not Chicago, right? Like it's small towns. It's where the economic or the academic opportunity took many parents without considering or without having the privilege to think about, well, what's the diversity like? What's the safety like, right? Like, and juxtaposed with the, those of us who were, you know, uh, for whatever circumstance, raised on the coast and you know, my Korean American experience was very different because I grew up in Fullerton, then right. New York City, right. then came back to LA to go to SC and like Koreatown was our backyard. And I don't know if either of those extremes are better than another. Because um, I think what people sometimes don't experience is, you know, you don't feel like minority majority doesn't help solve some of the things that we want to solve, right? Like um, there's a bunch of Koreans who still in Fullerton, uh, my mom included, who've been here for 30 years, but, you know, uh, would have a very hard time functioning outside of that bubble right? because of language ease and everything is available in Korean cult community instead of having to, you know, not know anybody. And I, I think that's fascinating. And again, when we think about how we advocate for the Asian American community, we have to take all of these things into consideration, right? right? right. And not to fall to the easy or low hanging fruit, which many big city East Asian particularly men do, and I'm calling myself out in the same regard, where we suffer from the lack of diverse experiences. Therefore, we think that the Asian American experience should be defined by what we experience. And But I think for you, Charles, because you've been all these different places, right? The highs and the lows. And, you know, I, I think that's given you, at least from our brief, you know, getting to know each other the past few weeks, this perspective that it's really hard uh, not as hard, but like it's not so common, and it wasn't easy to go get all those lessons, right? Because there was pain and suffering, and in, in Michigan and going to Korea and all that. How did you evolve from taking the opportunity of getting into law school? Because you went into big law, as many uh, law students do, even still, uh, those who want to you know use the law to better the community. Were there points in your experience, professionally or personally, that built the foundation? to the Charles Jung that we know now, who uses his expertise and his knowledge to better the community? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I can tell you that uh, being in the Bay Area and part of the Asian American legal community is so, it's so special. Like, it's so special, like, particularly for someone like me who, uh, you know, comes from that perspective of often being the only one uh, to, you know, I remember in law school going to an Asian American Bar Association gala dinner and like being blown away, man, like seeing hundreds of Asian American lawyers. I'm like, wow, what is this? This is really cool. And, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, I started out in big law, as you, as you noted, and you know, that you go to a place like that and it's, you know, primarily non-diverse and I'm like, all right, well, you know, I'm not going to stick around, uh, but I'm used <laughs> to this. I can tough this out for a little bit, but, you know, to find my community uh, with the uh, Asian American Bar Association 
and to really be in community with mm. other people who are, you know, kind of down for the cause, uh, that is such a gift. It's a real gift. And it's, it's something that uh, oftentimes you don't find in the professions and in the law in particular. And it's, it's, it's a real, you know, I don't love the privilege language, the privilege and detriment language, but it, it is a real privilege because in the law, people are lonely. They are, you know, being a lawyer is an isolating experience and people quit law all the time because it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to be in the, the center of disputes all the time, to be fighting all the time. And, you know, oftentimes lawyers in big law firm practice, they hate their jobs. I mean, that's, I think that's a poorly kept secret, but they feel in competition, not just with opposing counsel, but even in their own firms. And to have this community around me, I, I never feel alone in the law. I, I, I you know, I, I always feel, not always, but, you know, I, I feel support uh, within this community. And that's, you know, and finding that Asian American community first, that's helped me integrate into the broader uh, bar community. So it's, it's been really cool. How, um, how did you find the balance personally? Um, you know, you went to a great school, you got into, and, and you've worked at some, you know, notable blue chip firms. Um, the, the expectation or sort of at least the de facto uh, path is keep your head down, work your ass off, try to make partner. And when we know, uh, those of us who either have experienced it or pay attention, the difference between the population at the associate level of people like us and at the top, big difference, because many of us leave for one reason or another. Some stick around and make it to the top. But was there a point where you decided to leave or was it when you decided to leave, I guess, was it for to pursue the things that you wanted to fight in the good name and the good fight that perhaps a big firm would not? Or was it, hey, you know, uh, this ladder that I'm climbing, climbing I, don't, I don't see a whole lot of Charles's up at the top. Because I think it's a conversation that many are having more often now in terms of is this system or is this uh, game, whether it's law or consulting or banking, even technology, is this made for me? Can I make it to the top if I follow the rule book or the one that we've been told to believe? Curious to you know, understand for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think... I mean, there's nothing special about me, but I, I think that we have to support Asian Americans who make all, any and all of those choices. And you're right. I mean, this is a phenomenon, not just in the law, but definitely in the law, uh, but uh, where, where, you know, Asians are invited in to be, the, be on the factory floor, be the workers, maybe rise to middle management. But you know what? In, in the law, middle management doesn't really exist. You're a senior associate. And uh, almost no Asian Americans make it to the top. Uh, and even if when they do make partner, they're often service partner and get stuck out there. So, you know, the phenomenon that you see now where you see one or two or three Asian Americans breaking their way through, that's a, that's a real thing. That's a special thing. And we got to support those people. Uh, yeah, but speaking about me personally, no, I'm, I didn't have... I, I wish I could say I had that kind of altruism and vision at the beginning. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I, I started out in big law, and you asked me wh when that decision point happened. It was like day one, man. I, I walk in there, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I cannot be this fake. I, I can't. I cannot do this. So it was like uh, that mismatch that was there from day one. I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I was amazed to walk into big law and like make you know, start out with a salary that I never thought I would achieve in my life and already starting out making more than my you know, family ever did. And, and, but yeah, I mean, it was when it happened eight months in when me and three other attorneys were so arrogant and stupid, which is a real dangerous combination in the <laughs> law. And uh, we gave our notice and started a plaintiff side class action firm, which failed after a year. And then we kind of hightailed it back. Most of us did to big law. And every year we, we'd meet together again over drinks and, and commiserate. And we'd say, man, this sucks. This really sucks. And when are we going to go out again? And uh, I guess it was a few years into uh, that, uh, going back to the big firm seeking refuge there, we did it. And that we left and, uh, 
were smarter about it the second time around. And that was, gosh, I guess that was 15, 16 years ago. <laughs> I, I think that's just the challenge and, and balance that I think is an evolving conversation, you know, for not just for Asian Americans, but for many, many people, you know, there is, you know, some of the, the related topics of like sunk costs, right? Like, well, I got this degree. I might as well be the thing that I went to school for. Right. Uh, the salary is good. Like how much would I, I went through this, like, what is the break-even point of me making money as an entrepreneur that would eclipse what I would have made had I stayed in consulting? And right, right. How do we justify that? And um, and obviously, there's like the, the the social and family. What's mom gonna think? And it's silly that we even still ask ourselves that because we're all you know uh, parents ourselves or you know grown adults when we make these decisions. But you're right. I, I think it's you know never to shame one side or the other, but just understanding that the things that we thought we wanted to pursue may not actually be the one uh, or, or, you know, it may not be what we thought it was, right? I often think about when you talk to young folks, college students, they use these, they use this phrase, right? Like my dream job and my dream company. And I was like, one, um, dreaming about work is interesting, but two, like you have no idea what the job is or the culture is. And so like, why put these brands and logos on a pedestal? Like go experience it, go do stuff and then decide if you want to pursue it or not. But I digress. Um, so you, you've been practicing law for a long time independently um, up in the Bay and and probably have seen a whole lot of different things. How have you used those experiences and, um, you know, give us sort of a your entry into or your uh, evolution into being, you know, one of the key community leaders up in the Bay and, and beyond in terms of using your voice and your privilege to be able to advocate for the, the voiceless in our community? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think like you during the pandemic, I, I reached a point where you know, I'm like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, you know, a long time. And, you know, my life is not about making money. And uh, so during the pandemic, I thought about professionally, what, you know, what would make me really excited in my practice? And uh, for me personally, you know, the things I really enjoy are, are working with people to find don't know how to describe it, but find their voice and find a measure of redemption. Um, and so over the past couple of years, my practice has evolved to representing uh, professionals, uh, executives, founders. So the majority of my practice right now is representing, I represent a current CEO, a former CEO, a two general counsel, a former CFO of a public company. And um, their stories aren't all the same, but what is common is finding truth and redemption and helping them achieve, you know, achieve their story, articulate, find, you know, like really dig down, figure out what their lives are about, what their stories are really about, and help them articulate it uh, inside the courtroom and outside. And outside, you know, that could take the form of telling their story on a, a broadcast like this or um, – you know, telling their story in the press. But, you know, people I work with, sometimes they're in a really tough spot, you know, like they're going through a corporate internal investigation or they, they're, you know, their company, their CFO and their company wants to lay some blame at their feet uh, or they're going through a transition and their former company is hounding them as they try to go to a different company. But, you know, that that truth-telling, that storytelling aspect, that redemption, sometimes reclaiming one's reputation, that is so, so deeply satisfying. And, you know, that, you know, and, you know, kind of, it, it, it makes me so sad to, to see in my community so many lawyers, the incredibly talented people who hate what they do. And don't find purpose in what they do because, you know, it's you know, like if you're willing to do community work, you you can give a real value, give real a real gift to your community by by using your skills that way. You know, I you know I kind of informally lead this, um, you know, this this group of uh, you know eight community organizations in San Francisco. Uh, and I say informally lead, it's not even that that's overstating it. You know, they're, I'm just lucky that, that they allow an old guy to hang around and, but, you know, but to, to be able to, you know, 
you know, share some ideas and give a little bit of counsel to them. But that, that's, that's so, it's one, it's fun. And, but two, it's so meaningful uh, to do that. And so, you know, right here in the Bay Area, it's so special, man. Like there's, you know, I remember this moment where I was on the phone with uh, my friend, someone I consider a friend and mentor, Dale Manami, who uh, in the uh, Japanese American space and the Asian American space has led so much change. And, you know, he, he and I were talking about this political issue. And then, you know, I went to happy hour with, uh, you know, leaders from these eight organizations in Chinatown at Reds, you know, and here I am a Gen Xer and like talking to these, uh, to these Gen Z and millennial generation kids about Asian American activism. So we have like the three generations of the Asian American movement all coalescing in one spot in one moment, talking about how we can advance the movement. It's really cool. The last couple of years have been extremely challenging in a lot of different ways. Um, but I think where most people land is what are we going to do about it? Right. I think anger, sadness, we go through these emotions. Um, thank God for technology and then thank God for our friends in the news business, because without them, we wouldn't know about half of this stuff. And we're left to wonder where were all the stories of stuff like this when. 30, 40 years ago, it was still happening. We know that. Yeah. But other people refuse to recognize it because even with video evidence, they're still trying to fight it. Um, it's a complex issue in terms of what do we do about it in terms of policing, uh, justice, um, long-term resolutions, economic empowerment, all these different topics. Um, what has kept you going because uh, you've been involved particularly on the Asian American community uh, bar association side of, of all different localities and even at the national level. Um, but in particular, um, I imagine the tone and the conversations that you're having with your peers uh, in those circles are, are quite different than the ones you had maybe 10 years ago um, in terms of what is our purpose and what can we do. Um, and, you know, for, from a unique perspective, what can we do and, you know, what uh, should we be doing as a community? to help those people. Um, and in one particular, I think, perspective is when the media spotlights us, even it's even with at the top of our community minds. And so you're going to get more volunteers, more money, more attention, even more people sharing these stories. We're sort of past that now where we're in it for the long run for people who are going to be in it for the long run. Right. Uh, the media attention has swayed, the donations have probably gone down. So, but it's now, you know, action time or at least, you know, strategy time. Um, give us some perspective on, you know, what you've seen and then um, how alarming is it? Uh, what can we do, uh, particularly on, you know, keeping our people safe perspective? Yeah, that's, that's a big topic. Uh, it, you're right. It is action time. But uh, you know what? It's been action time for two and a half years. And, uh, you know, I, I'll admit to you that I felt some real deep frustration uh, that we haven't done more over the past two and a half years. Some mm -hmm. real frustration, some real squandered opportunities because these moments, these moments of unity do not come around all that often, right? right? I mean, you know, uh, you know, I've lived a minute or two and like I, you know, but, you know, Vincent Chin happened during my lifetime. Uh, you know, the LA riots, uprisings, Haigu, whatever you want to call it. That happened, uh, that ha Vincent Chin happened 40 years ago. The LA riots happened, what, that was 30 years ago. Uh, and then there's this moment and, right, so, you know, uh, we've been waiting a generation really for this moment and for our community to be, to be so divided on the issue of policing has been a real shame to the detriment of our movement and it should not be that way because Asian Americans agree on ninety percent of things, and those, uh, you know, uh, some the couple remaining issues that divide us, uh, you know, one of them is going to go away next year. In my prediction, uh, you know, with affirmative action, you have a, you know, crazy radical six three conservative majority in the Supreme Court. Sorry to betray my political beliefs, but uh, you know there they're going to take out affirmative action, right? So, and that's been a real dividing 
point in our community. And so what's left to divide us other than, you know, kind of our natural divisions, it's this issue of policing. And there's no way that should divide us. No way, because I mean, I, I think at core, Asian Americans believe the same thing. Asian Americans deserve public safety too. You, you, there, there is no moral universe uh, in in which we can say that our uh, elders and Asian American women who've borne the brunt of the violence and the incidents that they deserve anything less than equal protection of the law. I mean, right. yeah, I mean, m- most Amer- Asian Americans supported. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and continue to support common sense criminal justice reform. That does not mean that um, law should be differentially applied to Asian Americans. Yet we have, you know, uh, some groups that refuse to appear on the same stage with anyone from law enforcement, and that's not that's not right. I, I, I'm sorry, that's not productive. Um, uh, you know, so I mean, what can we do? Well, one, we should be unabashed about saying, yeah, the laws apply to us too. Hmm. In safety, in the workplace, there, there is no justification for treating us, continuing to treat our community worse and less. And, you know, you know, and that, that is not, you know, the, the, the polls show that is not the Asian American community's view. It's not the American view, I will say. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, hey, hey, what, you know, one common thing that people focus on, I think, too much is hate crimes because it's not true that most of these uh, incidents can ever be characterized as hate crimes because you have to prove something that's very difficult to prove, which is a, a predominant uh, bias motivation. Very difficult to do that. So, you know, if, even if we had the strongest hate crimes laws in the world. It, it wouldn't get rid of the root causes of hate, but hate crimes laws are a part of it because hate crimes laws exist for a reason. They exist because a, you know, a crime that's motivated by bias, let's say racial bias or animus towards a religion, that's an attack on an entire community. And right now, uh, you know, out of the you know, roughly 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States, it's a tiny fraction, something like less than 3,000 of them that even report even one hate crime ever, right? Year mm-hmm. after year. And is that because hate crimes don't exist? No, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's because they're not enforced. It's a pain in the butt to investigate them. It's a pain in the butt to prosecute them. And so it does not happen. So, you know, so in California, uh, you know, there is a law, AB 1947, that should pass legislature and the governor should sign it doesn't increase penalties it doesn't increase uh, uh, the definition of hate crimes all it does is it helps law enforcement adopt uniform policies to know it when they see it and mm-hmm. that's the model of hate crimes reform that should happen around the country uh, which is to actually help law enforcement which tends to be overburdened uh, know it when they see it and, uh, to prosecute it, uh, when it's there. That doesn't mean that we can't also work on racial justice and reform the criminal justice system. There's racism there for sure. And we have to work on both and we can walk and chew gum at the same time. You mentioned something that I think is, um, I don't know, something that I feel and, and many friends and community folks feel is this perception at least because we are um, all uh, affected by this and dealing with everything um, processing it um, is, is this sort of I don't know if we can agree on we seem so far apart right and that division isn't just unique to the Asian American community I mean look at the rest of the country look at the rest of the world it, it seems so divisive and hard to meet in the middle right because we we, we refuse to, uh, I don't know if we refuse to, it is hard to see the gray in things. It's either black or white, left or right. What what keeps you hopeful uh, in the work that you do that we can and that we have to at some point? It's not a matter of whose majority is going to be louder for a short amount of time to change the laws into the things that they want to see and then the other, have to people, the other people have to live with it. If we, if we imagine a more 
collaborative future and, and trying to figure things out together. Yeah. Uh, what gives you hope and continue to do the work that you do to bring people together? You know, what gives me hope is uh, seeing these seeing these young leaders come together around the country. Um, right. So, uh, you know, there, there was a moment last year where, um, there was a moment last year where, uh, you know, a, a prominent family member of a prominent victim, uh, uh Pakti, the 84 year old Thai grandfather who was pushed and killed in the Anza Vista neighborhood, uh, not too far from here. Uh, you know, whose death sparked the Stop Asian Hate Movement. You know, her, uh, there was a moment when, you know, his uh, surviving daughter, Monthanis, came into my office and, you know, she she was just racked with grief and guilt. I mean, she showed me this, you know, picture of, uh, you know, Grandpa Visha, you know, lying in, uh, you know, ICU bed with tubes, you know, coming out of his body and, you know, uh, shortly before his passing. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, all she wanted is for his passing, you know, not to be in vain. She wanted his death not to be in vain. And it's very, very hard. I mean, like we hear these statistics all the time, but unless someone is willing to step up and tell their story, these statistics don't change anything. They don't. Uh, it's stories that change people. It's stories that move. And, uh, you know, she, you know, that, you know, uh, you know, we thought about, well, we're coming on the one year anniversary of Grandpa Visha's passing. What can we do? And uh, we thought about it in the Bay Area and we thought, well, it's not enough to just market in the Bay Area. We need to have, we need to remind Asian America and America that this issue of anti-Asian racism and violence has not passed. You, the rest of the country may not see it anymore, but we, it has not passed. And so we organized a, uh, a national rally uh, called the Asian Justice Rally in New York City, in Atlanta, in Chicago, in Philadelphia, in San Francisco, in Los Angeles. Uh, and then that built, and then the next event was a 11 city rally, uh, to mark the one year anniversary of the March 16 Atlanta, uh, shootings. Um, and, uh, you know, we've held uh, additional national events since then. And the point isn't the events. The point is to continue to raise visibility, to activate the movement, to activate young people. And what gives me optimism is, is seeing, is seeing these young leaders, coalesce and continue to lead and you know as you know older people as a gen x or myself you know my role is is to support them and encourage them and connect them and and i do have optimism i have a lot of optimism for the the asian american movement um you and i are both fathers to tiny people <laughs> i've had a chance to uh meet your daughter and a very very sweet wonderful girl um and I have to say, man, I'm sorry to interrupt your question, but I'm so grateful to you. Like, uh, you know, I, 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 it, it wasn't until, uh, you know, you, you were at an event, um, uh, I think it was called a night market or something in San yep. Francisco and you met my five-year-old and uh, as soon as you saw her, you, you know, you, you know, you introduced yourself, like you related to her, uh, and then you took her over to uh, a book stand and you bought her uh, a children's book, which she loves. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I just didn't, I didn't get it. Uh, you know, I didn't really understand what that was about until I started listening to your podcast and, you know, seeing how much, you know, kind of writing that, you know, writing that next chapter uh, in the story of, uh, of Asian America and, and your whole purpose in this podcast i mean that's so meaningful <laughs> i'm so grateful for you uh, thanks man and, and and shout out to joanna ho the uh the author of that book who uh graciously signed her book and it, it was i mean it's i don't know uh, be, being a father has completely changed the way that not, not only look at life in general but what what i want to do um to make money to spend money to you know to really leave this world a little bit differently uh positively and then, so I want to pose that same question to you: like, how, what, what can we be doing, whether you're a parent or not? Um, you know, you shouldn't have to be a parent to understand that 
we we need to be motivated and aligned to make the future a better place. I mean, thinking about in two generations what our grandparents went through uh, in the occupation and the war in Korea, and now what we get to do, which is ridiculous, right? The opportunities that uh, they've offered us to do. What do you hope for our kids? Um, I think the obvious one is you know less racism, less hate, more safety, and and you know and, and along the same lines of hopefulness. Um, what what keeps some share yeah share with me some thoughts about fatherhood's effect on the work that you do. Oh man, it's uh, you know it it leads. Being a father has uh, made made me want to be a better person, a better human being, uh, be a better example. You know, stopping you know be less of a jerk in, in my day to day life, and to, to you know uh, to to you know try to be a try to be a, a, a gift to mm. to one's community. Um, and what I want for my daughter, yeah, I mean the living in a in a world that's less racist for sure but it's not just that i mean like you know uh, allowing people to kind of express themselves without you know kind of the burdens and limitations of prejudice and 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 barriers to see that 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 possibility to imagine big and to be able to live it but you know also to embrace being what it means to be a, a minority and an Asian American in this society in this moment where, you know, we're, you know, race in America is so black and white still, even now in 2022, the conversation yeah. is about black and white and, and, you know, Asian Americans cannot shy away from this moment because we are a mirror. We're a mirror to both white America and to black America, to the rest of this country. Right, like if uh, you know, if there's no racism in this country, you know, why are Asian Americans almost uniformly shut out of the top management positions? Why, why do Asian Americans achieve the lowest return on investment to education? Why are we promoted at the lowest rate compared to uh, the white community, the Hispanic community, the Black community? If there's really no racism, how come? Why? Why exactly is that? Yet, you know, on, on the other side, if race and power were everything, how is it that people from a war-torn country, uh, you know, through sacrifice and uh, uh, through sacrifice and personal investment, how can they rise out of poverty in one generation? I mean, both of those things are true, and uh, you know, so I mean, we are a valuable mirror to America. And we should be willing to have the uncomfortable conversations and to embrace the role and not just to uh, align ourselves with one community or another, but to embrace our own truth. And, you know, even thinking, abstracting from that to the bigger picture, I mean, we're entering a moment in history of conflict, of generational conflict, you know, the type of conflict that only comes around once every hundred years or so, uh, you know, and if it turns out, you know, we're, we're talking, you and I both know that the violence, the visible violence that we see in this moment is nothing new. That part isn't new. Uh, the part that's new is that people have video cameras and phones. And so we see it in front of our eyes, but, you know, uh, you know, the, but and even if it's dying down now, what's going to happen the next time some Asian country does something that America doesn't like? It's going to be the same thing again. It's not going to be COVID. It's going to be something else. And what if, God forbid, that there's a hot conflict between the United States and China? All of us in that moment as Asian Americans, we're all Chinese in that moment. But there's an opportunity for us here to be that bridge, that bridge between East and West, right here in America. We are American, but we're also Asian American. And, you know, you know, I think we, it's impossible to predict, but I think we have an opportunity to be peacemakers, to be ambassadors for understanding between East and West. And I can't, uh, I can't visualize what that thing is right now. I imagine that there's going to be a moment where we can serve that role to be that cultural translator 
and that ambassador for truth and peace. And um, so that's the best way I can explain it. Thank you. Um, We we typically end our show with uh, the Dearest Americans letter and asking you to share your your thoughts and your inspirational moments. I I think we cover most of it, but is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, I mean, we, we have no choice but to be hopeful. And I think we have to see ourselves as this unique opportunity for those of us who can sit between two cultures and speak two different languages and to relate both to our parents and to our children. We are not as powerless as we think. And regardless of how you view the world or how you vote or who you pray to, it doesn't matter. I think we, like you said, we have to be the intermediary. We have to be the bridge between the two cultures because what 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 else is it for, right? I, I often think about, you know, uh, my kids, their identity as a Korean American is going to be very different than mine, just like mine is very different than for my father's. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the world doesn't care, right. right? The world won't care how we see ourselves. They're going to treat us the same way. And even to figure out how we can, the three of us at least, the three generations can align, um, it's it's almost impossible seeming. Um, but, you know, through conversation and, you know, through chats like this, I, again, have no choice but to be hopeful. Right. Um, so sure, share with, with us, Charles, your, your final comments as we, you know, um, enter, um, I don't know, you know, uh, midterm election season, more viruses and diseases, the Supreme Court doing whatever the heck they're going to do. Um, it, it seems also hopeless, but leave us with your final thoughts as you uh, wrap up your time with us here today. Yeah, man, so many, so many thoughts. But I mean, let me focus on maybe smaller scale uh, and focus internally, which is to say that it's it's time. Uh, it's time for us as a community to advocate for ourselves. Doesn't mean that we can't be good allies. We can, and we must be good allies. But this is a, a, a special moment of time. Asian American, you are not an afterthought. You are not second to anyone. And uh, fighting racism and ending discrimination means that you also need to stand up for yourself and to advocate for other Asian Americans. That discrimination that you face in the workplace, that is real. Those stereotypes that, uh, that you experience that's real. And it's time to speak up for the community in our own voice and do it unabashedly. Uh, and uh, what also occurs to me is that it is time to move beyond Asian hate. Th- this is a time to assert Asian American equality in the workplace, in representation. Uh, you know, we all know that this violence that we're seeing is just a symptom of a broader disease. And, uh, you know, we, you know, uh, we're not going to be able to address that broader disease if we don't say the truth and say the truth in our communities and to our political leaders and to hold them accountable and to the, and in our own spaces, in our own workplaces, it's time to tell the truth. Thank you. Um, refreshing to hear, um, motivating to hear those words from you. Um, as we continue, I don't know where this leads to. Um, we, we hope uh, that there's um, fewer incidents to talk about, to mourn about, but yet that should not detract from our motivation and ability to institutionalize some of these changes or to put people in the right offices or whatever way we see fit so that these things happen a little bit less and that you know we don't worry about immediate safety of our parents of our loved ones and and just you know people in general thanks so much uh this has been a lot of fun uh you can uh, look up asian justice movement you can uh we'll, we'll link all the organizations that charles is involved with here in the show notes if you want to click over to get involved and to help um look forward to seeing you soon at, at some i'm sure at something uh, <laughs> whether it's up in the bay or down here in la really grateful for your engagement and your uh coming on here and, and sharing your story and again a uh, big shout out to Justin and the rest of our friends at Stand with Asian Americans for making this possible. And uh, stay healthy, stay safe. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for what you do. Big thanks to Charles and big thanks to our friends at Stand with Asian Americans for making this episode possible. Uh, really inspired by the work that Charles is doing, both in the public domain and behind the scenes, uh, to help advocate for our community uh, with his knowledge of the law and the policies uh, that many of us, uh, you know, are not as aware of. And so. Uh, big thanks to him. Uh, you can find him online. Uh, we will put all the links where you can find him on the sh- in the show notes. Um, 
And you can find us at TheYearsInAmericans.com to listen to older episodes and learn more about the show at TheYearsInAmericans on Instagram. You can find me personally at JerryWan.com or JerryJ1 on Instagram. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in. If you love this episode, if my conversation with Charles has resonated with you, I encourage you to go ahead and uh, share this episode out with a friend, whether through a text, calling, showing up at their door, or simply taking a screen picture and putting it on your Instagram. Thanks again to everybody for joining us. This is episode 161. Uh, we're, celebra- we're getting to celebrate two and a half years of doing this, and it's been uh, quite a fun journey for us. We have so many exciting things ahead. Again, new logo, new newsletter, same podcast. Bit.ly slash DAA newsletter is a place to go for you to sign up for a newsletter, our newsletter right now. We have an exciting guest coming up uh, next Tuesday, Cal Penn. So excited for that. And we got some extra, extra new, exciting things for us for the rest of the summer. I am your host, Jerry Wan of The Earliest Americans, and I thank you for joining us. And as always, we wish you health, safety, and happiness. <laughs>